Welcome to Genomics Essentials in Hematologic Malignancies, a podcast series brought to you by the American Society of Hematology, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and the France Foundation. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, Abvi, Daiichi Sankyo, Pharmacyclics, and Illumina. As medical professionals, it's important that we stay up to date on the latest developments in genomic testing and understand how to interpret those test results, as well as select the appropriate therapeutic agents to manage hematologic malignancies. This podcast will focus on therapeutic testing for MDS and clonal hematopoiesis. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Diaz. I've been a practicing community oncologist and hematologist for about 20 years, and I'm joined by Dr. Namrata Chandhuk, who is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology at the University of Miami Health System. Dr. Chandhuk, I think maybe a lot of the audience might be familiar with myelodysplastic syndrome, but a new term that has been evolving over the past several years is clonal hematopoiesis. So please tell us what exactly is clonal hematopoiesis? So clonal hematopoiesis is a pre-malignant expansion of a population of blood cells that's derived from a single hematopoietic stem cell. And what we often use this term for is somatic mutations in leukemia driver cells. So what does this mean? All of us acquire mutations over the course of our lives. These end up being due to errors in replication of DNA. And most of these are corrected. Others are inconsequential. And for the ones that remain uncorrected, they may have no functional consequence, meaning that they're not in a coding region or something like that, or they'll cause that stem cell to die. But some of these mutations can actually lead to a growth advantage, particularly in the right circumstance for a particular population, uh, which leads to self-renewal, improved differentiation, and then the ability to transform into a, a malignancy in the right conditions. There's a little bit of the mutation providing an advantage to a particular stem cell population that plays into this. And then within clonal hematopoiesis, there are two key categorizations. So many people would have heard the word CHIP. And CHIP stands for clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, which is basically what we characterize people who don't have an abnormality in their blood cell lines that we can detect by just a regular CBC, but have a mutation that has a variant allele frequency of greater than 2%. And then another subcategory, which ends up being more clinically consequential, at least from what we know now, is clonal cytopenia of undetermined significance, which is basically having that mutation at a greater than 2% frequency, but also having a cytopenia, which means that you have like an anemia and then this mutation, which might be the explanation for it without having all the dysplasia and complete classification for MDS. Which populations of patients are at risk for clonal hematopoiesis? In general terms, really, it's all of us. So as we age, our risk goes up. So they found that people over the age of 50, 60, with each decade of life, us having a mutation in one of these genes becomes higher and higher. But whether it causes the consequences is totally a different story and something we'll talk about more. But beyond age, other risk factors would be 
assaults to the marrow. And what I mean by that are things like prior chemotherapy. So we know patients who've had prior chemotherapy, a pretty high percentage of those patients have these mutations. Other risk factors seem to be smoking and perhaps some rheumatologic disorders, you know, inflammatory disorders. So really it's all of us with time, but some predispositions depending on circumstances. That raises another question because, you know, as hematologists, uh, you know, we see a lot of patients with blood abnormalities um, all over the place, especially here in Florida. I'm sure it goes on elsewhere in the country. But who do we need to be thinking about? Who deserves to have assessment for clonal hematopoiesis? So I think the key thing here is we're actually assessing for anemia, not particularly clonal hematopoiesis per se. And so the workup initially is, and I said anemia generally, but could be thrombocytopenia or neutropenia, but, you know, some sort of a cytopenia. And the key here is to follow the algorithm for that treatment. But realistically, you know, some patients you'll see have a high MCV. When you're thinking about anemia, they don't have another explanation in that they don't have a B12 deficiency. There's no copper deficiency. You know, their liver is fine. Everything else is fine. In those patients, it becomes, you know, important to make sure it's not because of MDS or clonal hematopoiesis. And the quick, easy way to do this upfront is to get next generation sequencing, which is available quite broadly throughout the United States. But oftentimes, if you think the anemia is chronic and, and consequential, may warrant a bone marrow biopsy in those who the anemia is progressive or, you know, patients are developing symptoms, et cetera. Well, that raises an excellent question. So this is a typical scenario that we see very commonly here in Florida. You know, you'll have a primary care doctor that is on top of their game and they want to make sure that their patients are getting everything addressed and their patient might be, you know, a senior adult, let's say over the age of 70 and, you know, they've got an anemia. And, you know, you sit down, you go through the workup, as you've mentioned, you do all the right testing and often at times, one of the thoughts that we have in the community is, well, you know, if the anemia is mild, they do have a little bit of an MCV, a large increased MCV. You know, they very possibly have a mild dysplastic syndrome. You know, one of the things that we're always thinking about, well, it's so mild at this time, I'm not even going to really treat it. You know, I might wait to do a bone marrow biopsy later. Because of this new classification, should we consider having a lower threshold to do the bone marrow biopsies earlier? So as an intermediate, if you're not sure if you truly need a bone marrow biopsy, so for example, you have an anemia, but, you know, the hemoglobin still, you know, used to be 12, now is 10, and you're not quite sure if you're ready. Doing a next generation sequencing panel off of just peripheral blood can often offer an answer if we're thinking clonal hematopoiesis, right, as an explanation. Because in that circumstance, we have a little bit more information now about how we classify these. So most patients who have a mutation that we would call clonal hematopoiesis ends up being this mutation in DNMT3A. And now we know a mutation like that may not have as much of a consequence as some of those other more aggressive leukemia kind of mutations. So I think as an intermediate step, it definitely adds value to do a next generation sequencing panel. And if that helps clarify the picture at all before moving on to a bone marrow. Uh, and of course, if it's a progressive, you know, cytopenia, bone marrow is definitely warranted. Are there other reasons besides anemia or a low cell count why we may want to be proactive and consider identifying clonal hematopoiesis earlier rather than later? 
So doing testing on patients for potential CH can be very beneficial, and we're learning more and more about this as time goes on. There are two pathways or two reasons that this could be important. One, as is a little bit clearer, is progression to uh, myeloid neoplasm, which is MDS or acute myeloid leukemia, which can be very fast and dangerous. What we know now over time is that there's actually a risk score, which helps us sort of think about mutations uh, in a way that we can characterize them and discuss with patients a little bit more in detail about what a particular mutation lends to their prognosis, what their risk is. Because earlier, uh, we used to tell patients pretty generically that, you know, about a 0.5 to 1% chance of progression per year, just like they did for myeloma. But now it turns out we can actually delineate that a little better. You know, if you have a cytopenia, which is called CCUS, there's a higher chance of progression for the most part to a myeloid malignancy. So we do want to be very careful with those patients. And the other important or beneficial factor there is that now that we know that there's a much higher risk, we can offer them clinical trials at certain sites. So while this is not widely available yet, I see this being a much bigger factor in the future. So for example, with IDH mutations, there's currently a decentralized national trial to look at patients with CCUS and see if we can improve you know, their blood counts and things with simple medications. There are others as well. And I think treatment of these disorders is so difficult that hopefully we'll be able to prevent disease progression altogether. With respect to non-blood-related disorders, we also know that clonal hematopoiesis is linked to cardiovascular health. So certain mutations within that spectrum have been shown to lend to increased mortality in all comers, but also poor core cardiovascular health. And some of that might be related to plaque formation. Uh, which was looked at very carefully by a few prominent labs. So we have good mouse data, good human data, uh, all of that to say that there are other consequences of CH as opposed to just blood problems. And, um, you know, every day there's something new about this. Like there was a big uh, session talking about how this might affect your uh, neurological health. A very, very good review article by Dr. Jaiswal. Uh, a few years ago, sort of summarizing the early developments in many other areas, but much more to come. So Dr. Chanuk, let's say I'm asked to see a patient and I realize, wow, I need to evaluate for clonal hematopoiesis. I do next generation sequencing on the blood and I see some abnormalities. And because of patient limitations, transportation, distances, et cetera, they may not be able to get in to see hematologists. How can your healthcare professional community, what risk stratification tools is it that they need to use? Where can they find them? Yeah, so there was a very recently published article in the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, by Dr. Weeks and Dr. Ebert called the clonal hematopoiesis risk score or CHRS, which delineates this a little bit better. It hasn't been created into a tool to my knowledge yet, but I'm sure it will be in the future. And basically what this showed was a few of the things we've discussed already. So, you know, there was already data to inform us that having a cytopenia significantly increased your chance of actually developing a myeloid neoplasm. So someone who already has an unexplained anemia or neutropenia is someone who you want to evaluate a little bit more carefully. 
then within that mutational panel, what mutation pops up is also really important. So the most common mutation that people see is a mutation in DNMT3A. For most people, this ends up being a little bit safer than some of the others, meaning, you know, for that one patient, if they're otherwise well, I would feel more comfortable having an e-referral or some sort of a conversation with the hematologist without further evaluation. But, you know, patients where I would definitely think twice or try and get them, you know, to do even if it's a telehealth visit with the hematologist ends up being patients with splicing factor mutations. And uh, some of those uh, DNA damage repair pathway genes, so TP53 and PPM1D, because with splicing factor mutations, their risk for progression is very high. And while uh, DNA damage genes may not be as high, when they have those diseases, treating them is extremely difficult. So having a little bit of, uh, you know, a head start sometimes helps. And then otherwise, also just to get general guidance, because another mutation that we didn't talk much about is JAK2. And this is often seen in polycythemia vera or ET or uh, essential thrombocytosis. And, you know, for those patients, they actually have other factors like an increased risk of thrombosis. So maybe it's not necessarily just progressing to a different disease, but do they need to be on an aspirin or not? So even if they aren't able to physically travel to a site, sometimes with telehealth, that definitely has made our life a little bit easier or just an external conversation about, you know, how do we reduce risk? And I think most big academic centers, there's a person or two who's willing to engage in those conversations. So I think it's it's a, worth a chat, particularly for the mutations that we know are higher risk. Based on what I'm hearing, it sounds like there's uh, a lot of things that we can now think about in this category of patients we hadn't thought about previously. And since this is a new and, and evolving area, I am not aware. I don't think it's probably too early for there to have been um, publications of uh, the benefits of early intervention. But if you could please elaborate a little more on why it is best to study this now at this stage and to learn as much as we can. Absolutely. So you're right. Right now, we don't know if early intervention can help us. And and our motivation for early intervention realistically is to prevent some of these quite devastating diseases. Because as you know, for acute leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome, even though there have been many advancements, prognosis still remains quite poor. So if we can mitigate some of the issues that go around treatment of this and management downstream, it would be really great. There are numerous clinical trials that are currently in development, a few that are active and recruiting. IDH mutations in particular, there is a decentralized trial where they will mail you the medication and all of the screening is done off-site. And that's run through the University of Washington. So, uh, you know, I have a patient here in Miami who is going to enroll on that trial pretty soon. And that's a, a very interesting concept. And that's definitely something that came about from all the criticism that we've seen with clinical trials in general. Now, of course, um, one of the reasons that that can happen is because the drug that they're using is well-tested in other populations. So we don't expect there to be a lot of heavy or difficult consequences. And those are the kind of treatments we would want to you know, offer this early on, because why would you rob someone of quality of life when they don't even have a disease yet? So you know, less intense interventions that might 
mitigate the need for more aggressive treatments in the future and hospitalizations, et cetera. Dr. Chanduk, thank you so very much for your time and the interesting discussion. And to the audience, thank you for listening to this episode of Genomics Essentials and Hematologic Malignancies, a discussion about MDS and clonal hematopoiesis therapeutic testing. We hope you found this discussion informative and engaging. Please tune into our other podcast episodes for insightful discussions about ALL, AML, CLL, myeloma, and lymphoma. You can find the full list of podcast episodes at hematology.org and lls.org.